Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover today Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to call this section, Don't Grow Weary, as in don't grow weary running the Christian race, and don't grow weary of being disciplined by the Lord. That's what we're mainly going to talk about in this section. Our context is this, in the last chapter, we saw the faith of the Hebrew Christians throughout history, the faith of the Antiluvian Christians, the faith of the patriarchs, the faith of Moses, the faith of the judges, 40 verses of faith, faith, faith. All of those examples of faith were accompanied by actions on the part of those exhibiting the faith, brave and courageous actions. And the idea here, of course, is that the author of the book of Hebrews wants the Hebrew Christians to not grow weary because they're being persecuted and tempted to apostatize and go back into Judaism. So we start in verse 1 of Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let me just stop right there. What's the therefore, therefore? In the light of so many historical examples of perseverance and faith that I just mentioned, in chapter 11, because we have all those witnesses, all those examples, which the author calls a large cloud of witnesses, since we have that large cloud of witnesses, as mentioned in chapter 11 surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. Now that cloud of witnesses is a numberless throng, as Steve Ackerson puts it. Now contrast this feeling of being a part of something bigger than yourself. Compare that with the Elijah feeling of being all alone. This is in 1 Kings 19.10. He, Elijah, replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, but the Israelites have abandoned your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left, and they are looking for me to take my life. Well, if you live in the United States of America, I'm sure you've had that Elijah feeling. You feel like, well, nobody thinks that everybody is evil, everybody is corrupt, their tongues strut through the earth, spouting blasphemy and immorality. But remember... There's a large cloud of witnesses up there who've gone before, who have maintained the faith, and who have not yielded to the, the pressures of a sinful environment. Now, when the author says there are a large cloud of witnesses, we, we need to remember that these witnesses are not just spectators, not mere spectators, but they are inspiring examples. The idea of witnesses, a witness is in the effect of somebody who testifies. A witness is not a spectator at a, at a football match. A witness is someone who gets in the witness box and testifies to what he has seen. And so these people up in heaven that have, were mentioned in chapter 11, they are testifying. They're not just watching what's happening to the Hebrew Christians here in the 60s A.D. They are testifying about what they did to show their faith in their historical times. We know that the English word martyr comes from the Greek, so these are a large cloud of martyrs. Not all of them were martyrs in the, in the strict sense, of course, in Hebrews 11, but a lot of them were. A lot of them died from the persecution. When a person dies for the faith, that's a great testimony to the world. Now, these large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that suggests an athletic contest in a great amphitheater, as the NIV Study Bible puts it. Again, there's a lot of athletic metaphors we're going to see here as we go through here. In fact, right here in verse 1, let us run with endurance. That's the Olympic race he's talking about. That's the metaphor he's using. Now, the author exhorts the Hebrew Christians to lay aside every weight. Well, it's hard to run a race with weights on one's legs, is it not? Steve Ackerson points out, Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out, if the runner is too fat, lay aside your weight. He's referring to a corpulent runner, perhaps. All right, that's in general what the metaphor is, but specifically what's he probably referring to? He's probably referring to the sin and apostasy, the sin of apostasy and the sin of returning to Jewish temple worship. According to Ackerson and Jameson Fawcett and Brown, I think that's probably so. Don't go back to Judaism. Don't yield to the sin that so easily ensnares us, and that sin that would so easily ensnare the Hebrews is apostatizing. And the reason it would be so easy for that sin to ensnare them because they were undergoing horrible persecution and it would be very, very tempting to go back. The author exhorts against that and says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Run without weight. Lay aside every weight and run with endurance. Here's some scripture talking about laying aside, about being weighed down. Luke 21, verse 34. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. That'll weigh a Christian down in a big hurry is sins. A lot of non-Christians can sin and think they're getting away with it. 
But boy, when a Christian sins, he starts feeling guilty, he starts feeling horrible. I mean, even non-Christians feel guilty because of their consciousness. But boy, Christians, that'll weigh you down. Don't do it. If you're sinning, get out of it if you want to run the race with endurance. Colossians 3.8 But now you must also put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Put aside all those sins which will weigh you down. Run the race with endurance. Endurance. You usually don't think of a sprint in an Olympic race or in a track event. That's not really endurance. That's speed. Endurance is, when you think of endurance, you think of a marathon. The Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Some of the Hebrew Christians were thinking about dropping out of the Christian race due to persecution. Let's look at the persecution that they were enduring in the previous chapter, chapter 10, verses 32 through 36. Remember the earlier days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions, knowing that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you need what? You need endurance. So that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. You want to get to the end of the race and win the crown, you have to endure. Here's another race, Olympic race type metaphor in 2 Timothy 4, 7, where Paul says this, I have fought the good fight. Well, there's boxing. I have finished the race. You finish the race, you have to endure the pain of having to run. I've run, I've ran, I haven't run a lot compared to most people. But I remember I ran five miles once, thought I was going to die. But I remember when it was really bad was... When I was in junior high school, we had to run these 600-yard runs, which is nothing now. But back then, it was like, gosh, man, you're asking me to do something that's impossible. I remember you get around one time around that track, you got another half to go. And I remember thinking, I'm not going to survive this. This is just horrible. But you have to keep putting one foot in front of another to endure the pain. So you've got to get to the end or you'll get cussed out or get an F on your score, on your grade. It hurts when you're at the end of the race. And these Hebrew Christians were probably thinking like they were at the end of the race. I'm near the end of my race because I'm 68 years old, and I don't feel like sprinting. I don't feel like sucking it up and keeping going. you got to suck it up and keep going. We go down to Hebrews 12, verse 2. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, run with, run with endurance the race, comma. Keeping our eyes on Jesus, starting in verse 2, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him, Endured a cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. Keeping your eyes on Jesus, you know, when you're running a race, what do you do? You concentrate hard on the finish line because that's what, you, what you've got to get to. You put aside all else from your mind, the pain, the pain in your side, the other runners that are running, and you say, i got to get to the finish line. Well, Jesus is our finish line. That ought to keep us going. Here's a scripture from Philippians 3, 13 through 14. Brothers, I do not consider myself myself to have taken hold of it but one thing i do forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead leaning forward and reaching with your hands like when you're running that's what's ahead jesus at the finish line i pursue is my goal the prize promised by god's heavenly call in christ jesus he mentions a prize he mentions a goal he's he paul's big on athletics on the olympics if you will so there's another olympic metaphor Jesus is called the source and perfecter of our faith. That's very similar to, to Alpha and the Omega. The source means originator, the founder. Even our faith is a gift from God. God even starts us out giving us faith, Ephesians 2.8. For you are saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourself. Your faith is not from yourself. It is God's gift. The fact that you even believe God is the source, he started with that. And he's the end, the perfecter. Perfecter means the completer, the finisher. He's going to finish it up when he raises you to glory and resurrects you or, or before the resurrection when you die. If you die before the general resurrection and you come before Jesus spiritually, he's going to perfect your faith. He's going to say, this is it. This is what you've endured all this stuff for, and it's going to be wonderful, as all Christians know. Now, to give an example of how great it's going to be to endure a little bit of suffering because of all the joy because of the joy of winning the prize at the end of the race, Paul uses the example of Jesus, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross. Now, I've collected some scriptures, many of them in Hebrews, but also in other parts of the New Testament, where we see that Christians could receive a reward just like Jesus did if they would endure the crapola of this present life. 
So here's some scriptures that show joy after the after endurance of suffering. Hebrews 10:36. For you need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. Endurance gives you promise. And of course, endurance implies suffering. Enduring what? It means you're enduring something that's not pleasant. You endure it, you receive what's promised. Hebrews 10:36. Here's Revelation 3.21, the victor, I will give him the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also won the victory and sat down with my father on his throne. Oh, there's the, there's no suffering mentioned there, but there's the prize, the throne sitting at the right hand of God the Father, with Jesus at the right hand of God the Father. Not bad, not a bad prize. Hebrews 11.26, for he, referring to Moses, considered the reproach because of the Messiah to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, since his attention was on the reward. Now, Moses had to suffer a lot. First of all, he gave up all the treasures of Egypt. Then he had to live for 40 years in the Midian Desert. Then he had to undergo all the mess that was with the Exodus, 40 more years wandering around in the desert. He lived a hard life. He never got into the Promised Land physically on this earth. He died before he got there. However, his attention was on the reward, which is heaven with God in the afterlife. Matthew 5:10 through 12 those who were persecuted for righteousness are blessed. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Jesus is talking about what the Jews were saying to his listeners. He was not talking about what Americans are in the culture are saying about Christians today. Sounds very similar, though. Verse 12, be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. So there's the persecution for righteousness. Why are they blessed? Because they're being persecuted? No. They're blessed because the reward in heaven is great. It's not pleasant going through the persecution and all the nasty stuff that Christians are going through, but by golly, our reward is great in heaven. We need to look forward to that reward. Romans 8:18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Paul knew about suffering. He suffered himself. He knew a lot of his readers were suffering all across the Roman Empire. They were suffering. They were being persecuted. But he says, well, that's bad, but it's not bad compared to all the glory that's going to be revealed at the end. So there's your prize. You endure suffering, you get glory. Second Corinthians 4.17, For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. Light affliction. Now, of course, this is relatively speaking, because what Paul went through was not what I would call light affliction. It was affliction which I can't even imagine. Even the Hebrew Christians, having all your property stolen. I think if somebody came in and stole my house, I'd be quite upset about it. But they were very joyous about it because they knew what happened at the end of their life. Glory from Jesus. Light affliction. Like Paul, you know, he was beaten, shipwrecked. How many times was he beaten by rods? And sometimes he was scourged with whips, dragged before magistrates all the time. But that was light affliction because, boy, that was going to be great at the other side of the veil. After he died, it's going to be wonderful. First Peter 4.13, instead, instead rejoice as you share in the sufferings of the Messiah so that you may also rejoice with great joy at the revelation of his glory. Share in the sufferings of Jesus. It's worth it, folks. It's worth it because, boy, there's going to be a great reward at the end. First Peter 5.1, therefore, as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of the Messiah and also a participant in the glory about to be revealed, I exhort the elders among you. Peter participated in the glory about to be revealed because he's, he was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and he saw Jesus transfigured and he was transfigured and Moses and Elijah were there too and they were transfigured. So he knew he had something good waiting for him when he died. And it's a good thing too because he was turned upside down and boiled in oil, crucified upside down, boiled in oil as tradition has it. First Peter 5.10, Now the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus will personally restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little. There's that light affliction, a little bit, a little bit, compared to the eternal glory. And look what those guys suffered, my gosh. They suffered horribly, but that was just a little bit of suffering compared to how wonderful it was going to be when we see Christ at the end of the race. So Jesus, as our example, because of all that joy that he was going to see at the end of his crucifixion, he endured the cross. Let me give you a quote from Gill about enduring the cross. Quote, Christ, instead of being in the bosom of the Father, came into this world, instead of being in the form of God, he appeared in the form of a servant. Instead of the glory which he had with his Father from eternity, he suffered shame and disgrace. Instead of living a joyful and comfortable life on earth, he suffered a shameful and, and accursed death. And instead of the temporal joy and glory the Jews proposed to him, he endured the shame and pain of the cross. 
light affliction compared to what? Oh my gosh, watch Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ and tell me how light that affliction was. It was horrible what Jesus went through. But Jesus despised the shame of the cross. Now what does that mean? I've always had trouble with this. Every time I read it, I've got to think, now what does that mean? How do you despise shame? Well, if you think about it, if a girl despises her suitor and says, I despise that boy, it means she don't want anything to do with him. She don't care about him. Likewise, Jesus said, I don't care about the shame that I'm undergoing by lying on this cross because I'm doing God's will and there's a lot of glory for me waiting at the end of it. So he despised the shame in that sense and he, he, he didn't care about it. He regarded it as negligible or worthless, as Jameson Foster Brown puts it. He thought nothing of the shame he had to endure. He was so focused on the reward he was going to get. Now, after he endured the cross, he sat down at the right hand of God's throne. Big difference being suffering as a criminal on a cross and then sitting down at the right hand of the God who made the universe. The right hand, of course, is the position of power and authority that a king and, a, and an earthly king back then in the ancient Near East you your prime minister sat at the right hand, or maybe the queen did, I don't know, but the right hand, that's where the authority is. And so Jesus has the authority of God the Father. Hebrews 12:3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. Now consider this. Consider him. Consider Jesus. Consider that Jesus suffered a lot more than any of us will ever suffer, and he conquered with his resurrection. That should be a great comfort and joy to us. Us, we who might be tempted to become weary and disheartened because of the persecution. So consider Jesus in comparison to yourselves. He suffered a lot more than you have, so maybe you ought to suck it up and endure the persecution. You should attentively observe and analyze every part of Jesus' conduct and his extreme suffering so that you can make it through your relatively light suffering. You do this, you consider what Jesus went through so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. Here's a good verse about growing weary. Isaiah 40, a good set of verses. Isaiah 40, 28 through 31. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never grows faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. He gives strength to the weary and strengthens the powerless. There's the part of the verse, the passage we want to emphasize. He gives strength to the weary and strengthens the powerless. Youth may faint and grow weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. It's obvious that it is a part of the human condition that human beings grow weary. I mean, who hasn't? Jesus himself, in fact, grew weary after one, I forgot where it is in the Gospels. It's one of the verses that shows his humanity. He was tired. We all grow weary. And boy, when you add persecution to the natural tendency to grow weary, that's a deadly combination. But God gives strength to the weary and strengthens the powerless, as Isaiah says. I always keep thinking that verse about renewing my strength as eagles is referring to old men. Well, actually, it says young men grow weary. Youths may faint and grow weary. Well, if, if youths are growing weary, think of how much more the old people are going to grow weary. But anyway, the point is, is... You Hebrew Christians, don't you grow weary and lose heart. Verse 4, Hebrews 12. In struggling against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Again, he's trying to say, hey, you hadn't suffered as much as Jesus. Now, Jesus shed his blood. You haven't done that yet. This is so far what has happened to the Hebrews. Hebrews 10, verses 32, 33, and 34. Remember the earlier days when, after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were public publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions. So that's the first thing they had undergone is a lot of persecution, a lot of verbal persecution, a lot of ridicule. And at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. Your friends and your relatives might have received such ridicule. For you sympathized with the prisoners. That means some of the Hebrew Christians were thrown in jail and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions. Some of the Hebrew Christians had their goods taken away from them. Probably, through, I would imagine, through judicial process, maybe which was, makes it even more unjust. So tauntings, imprisonment, confiscation of property, but they hadn't died yet. They hadn't been killed yet like Jesus had. So the author's trying to buck them up and say, yeah, you think it's bad, but it could be worse. So just hang in there. And struggling against sin, what does that mean exactly? Well, it could be, as John Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown suggest, striving against sinful men who were seducing the Hebrews to apostasy. In struggling against sin against these persecuting Jews. That could be, or it could be in struggling against the sin in your hearts as you are tempted to apostatize 
It could be, but what I don't think it is, and struggling against sin, the lust of the flesh in general, that makes no sense to me. How do you how do you how do you resist fleshly lust of the point of shedding blood? I guess the medieval monks might have taken this verse and said, Oh, we got to stop the lust, so I'm gonna whip myself with a whip and let the blood flow. No. He's talking about struggling against the apostate the sin of apostasy. The context of the book of Hebrews makes is so important in interpreting each verse. And struggling against the sin of apostasy, either the external sin of the people causing the persecution or the internal sin of wanting to yield to the temptation to apostatize. Either way, that's what they're struggling against. Now, this this metaphor here of not resisted to the point of shedding your blood, that's the image comes from boxing, another athletic metaphor. The boxer sees his own blood, but he keeps on fighting. That's resisting. Boy, you keep resisting even when you're bleeding. Well, the Hebrew Christians hadn't gotten that far yet. Hebrews 12, verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or faint when you are reproved by him. Well, this exhortation is a quotation from Proverbs 3, verse 11, which says this. Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline. John Gill says that's who he's quoting, and I'm sure that's true. Do not loathe the discipline of the Lord. Don't hate it. Embrace it. Now, the Lord's discipline, what is this? The suffering and persecution that the Hebrews are undergoing? The study Bible says this persecution is corrective and it's instructive training. But notice now, discipline does not mean punishment. Not in this verse. Discipline does not mean punishment. It means training. I mean, think about it. you got a coach. He's coaching an Olympic athlete, and he trains that athlete. He makes him run and do exercises and all this. Does that mean the athlete is sinning? And the coach is punishing him? No, he's training him. There's a big difference. The Lord disciplines his children even though they aren't sinning. He's trying to build, bring them up to a higher level of sanctification even though they're not actively sinning. So we've got to keep that in mind. So don't take the Lord's discipline. So And notice that the author is assuming that the persecution from the Hebrew Jewish Hebrew persecutors is the Lord's discipline. The Lord is using these, this evil persecution in order to discipline his children. So, embrace the discipline. Now, it is possible that the discipline here could be a discipline as a response to sin, although I don't think it's likely. You know, Think about it. When you discipline a kid today, it's either you're trying to train him or you're disciplining him to not violate certain norms of proper behavior. So, there's a, there's a, the word is a little bit ambiguous. It can either mean discipline in the sense of train or discipline in the sense of punish. Well, if you want to take it with a little bit of punishment there, you could look at it this way, that the author of the book of Hebrews is thinking about the contemplated apostasy that went with the persecution. And the author is saying, the Lord's going to discipline that apostasy. He's going to punish that apostasy. So it would read like this, my son, do not take the Lord's punishment for apostasy lightly or faint. But I don't think that's it. I think it's talking about the Lord's discipline, the, uh, the punishment. The persecution was disciplining the Hebrew Christians to get closer and closer to God. And the author says in verse 5, Hebrews 12, don't faint when you are reproved by him. Now, reproof, of course, is an exhortation against something improper, like against a, like a, against a sin. But the suffering that the Hebrews were suffering was not because of any sin on their part. It was because for their faith in Christ. And faith in Christ is not something that needs to be reproved. So we could say, again, just like when I was talking about discipline, being reproved by him, is Jesus saying, hey, don't be tempted to apostatize to the Jewish religion again. I'm reproving you for that sin. So there's some sin involved in here as well as just plain old training. We go to verse 6, Hebrews 12. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Now we have the idea of punishment right there in the verse as well as discipline. So you've got training and punishment. In one verse, the verse that is being quoted here by the author of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 6, is Proverbs 3, verse 12. We've just quoted verse 11 of Proverbs 3. Now we quote verse 12 of Proverbs 3. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as a father, the son he delights in. Now notice that love goes with godly discipline. God would not love us if he did not discipline us. I'm sure you've heard this a million times from people trying to exhort us from the scriptures. Because every earthly parent knows that if you don't discipline your kid, you ain't loving him because the kid turns into a monster. I'll give you an example of this. Three or four years ago in China, ran into this young mother who had a kid who was hell on wheels. 
The kid would scream and holler and have tantrums, and the mother did absolutely nothing to discipline the kid. She was not a Christian at the time. In fact, she was running from the Lord. She had already busted up her marriage by doing everything, doing all what her four feminist friends said to do and not doing at all what her Christian mother told her to do, you know, and that's what happens. But now she's gotten radically saved, and boy, she's godly now. For one year, she's been godly, and for that year, she's been reading books on Christian discipline because she loves her child. The screaming temper tantrums have gone down from one every two days to one every two weeks. She's making progress. She wants to be a good Christian mother, and she knows that if she doesn't discipline that little girl, and she doesn't love that little girl. Because kids cannot contain their sinful emotions unless you discipline them to control them. And likewise us. We can't really be holy unless God disciplines us, trains us to walk in the straight path. Now God, not only the Lord, Jesus, not only disciplines the one he loves, his disciples, but he punishes every son he receives. Now punishing, that is not just training. That's Whip, in fact, the Greek, Greek, according to the NIV Study Bible, is to whip. So the Lord whips every son he receives. Oh, my gosh, it's child abuse. I can hear the millennial snowflakes and the liberal social scientists. Oh, look at that primitive religion. Talks about spanking a kid. Wow, that's just terrible. Spare the rod and spoil the child. Oh, God forbid. It's amazing how many Christians have bought into this crap. You love your kid, you're going to punish. Well, maybe you can take spoil the rod metaphorically and you have to put him in time out. Everyone, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and puts into time out every son he receives. Is that what it says? No, it's to whip every son he receives. Now, of course, it can be done improperly. It can be done in anger. It can be done excessively. The, the punishment might not fit the crime. There's an art to discipline that's a godly discipline, uh, of course. But so many people have abused that godly discipline that now discipline... Corporal punishment is received a dirty word. You can't corporally discipline anybody in the school systems anymore. And look how much discipline there is in the school systems. Is that a post hoc propte fallacy? I don't think so. I remember Charles Barkley, the round mound of sound, the former Philadelphia 76er, 76er who expresses himself with delight in NBA basketball broadcast. One time he was talking about an NFL player who was charged with child abuse because he whipped his child and charles barkley said in the black charles barkley of course is black and he says in the black community in alabama where he was from he says every parent in the whole state would be accused of child abuse he said that's just the way it was well you know but not anymore uh-uh we got to put him in time out while that kid goes in time out and he screams and hollers that really helps him teaches him to control his his sinful emotions but anyway God's not going to put, Jesus is not going to put you in time out as a Christian. He might have to whip you for whatever nonsensical thing you do. You say, well, what's that, why, is that going, why is that necessary? Listen, I have heard Christians contemplate adultery. I just heard a story the other day. A pastor of a church had decided he was going to run off on a love weekend with his secretary. He had a friend who was a prophet, had prophetic gifts, and the friend didn't know about this suggested tryst. So he calls up his friend and says, I got a word for you. I don't understand what it means. He says, you're about to do something that's going to ruin your whole life and your whole career. So don't do it. And he, the, the prophet friend didn't know what was being contemplated. The pastor wrote him back a couple shortly thereafter and said, I was about to ruin my marriage and ruin my career by going off on a love weekend with my secretary and your word stopped me from doing it. Well, you don't think God needs to whip us every now and then? I'm telling you. I remember another time in our college fellowship there was a brother who was going to witness to an old girlfriend of his he went and witnessed to the old girlfriend and ends up going to bed with her you don't think god needs to whip us sometimes i can give you lots of other examples i mean christian we, our sin is sin is everywhere and it's seductive and it's terrible and i think it's a great thing to fear punishment i remember one time when i was a little kid my mother rarely had steaks but by golly she not only had steaks prepared for supper that night they were being cooked on an outdoor grill and those steaks were fat one and a half inches maybe two inches i mean my and they were huge and i was just drooling for that steak because i really had steak and i love steak still do but i got the idea i was going to put a firecracker in that grill for a prank so i put the firecracker in the grill the firecracker goes boom and scares my mother half to death in which case she takes me whips the fire out of me or maybe it was my father i don't remember which one got me but I do remember going, being put in my room. That was time out, all right, and saying, you ain't eating steak for supper. Did I ever forget that? Oh, no. 
And, you know, that was when I was, what, eight or nine years old. I'm 68. It's been, what, five or six decades, and I have yet to put another firecracker into a grill when somebody was cooking steak on it. Sometimes you have to be punished, folks, as a Christian. Now, of course, the more you seek holiness and the more you fly right, you don't need to get punished by the Lord. It's like with kids. I had I had two kids. Oh, my gosh, they never did anything wrong. They were the perfect angelic kids. In fact, I, sometimes I wondered if the doctrine of original sin had been somehow missed, if these were two exceptions to the doctrine of original sin because they never did anything wrong. But, ooh, but that third kid, oh, my gosh, she received a boatload of whippings. <laughs> so... She's turned out to be a godly Christian woman. All, you know, it was, that's okay. And, you know, some kids have just got better natures than them. That's just the way they like dogs. You know, some dogs are nice and some dogs aren't. But it depends on the kid. You know, but the point is, is that when the kid is flying right, you don't need to give him a whipping. You don't do it. And likewise with Christians, the Lord does not need to punish you if as a son you are seeking holiness and you're doing right. Now, notice in verse 5, it says the Lord reproves his sons. And in verse 6, he punishes his sons. Punishing is a lot more severe than reprove. Reprove is like a simple rebuke. This is a severe rod. We go now to verse 7, Hebrews 12. Endure suffering as a discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? Suffering should not be a reason for despair. It should be a sign that God is loving you as a son or as a daughter. So when you see the suffering coming, don't think God's angry at you. Say, oh, this is a chance that I can be stronger in the Lord. God is dealing with me as a son. The devil uses evil to destroy, but, the God, but God uses evil to discipline and strengthen. There's a big difference. Let's look at some Old Testament scripture that talk about suffering as a means of reproving or as disciplining you, training you. Isaiah 48:10. Look, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. And of course, the purpose of testing by someone who loves you is to show that you're approved, that you can stand the heat, that you really are gold, that you really are silver. So when you're undergoing suffering and you hang in there and you keep praying to Jesus and you don't let go of him, he's approving you. He's dealing with you as a son. He's making you stand bright. He's, break, he's making you, he, he's going to show you forth as a mature Christian, as his son, how about Acts 14:22? Strengthening the disciples by encouraging them. These are the disciples that Paul, that Luke is talking about here, are the disciples in Lystra, Iconium, Pisidian, Antioch, on the way back on the first journey, on the way back that Paul and Silas were going back to. Excuse me, Paul and Barnabas were going back to Antioch. Acts 14:22. Strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it is necessary to pass through many troubles on our way into the kingdom of God. Many troubles, some translations, have afflictions. It's necessary. This life ain't a bed of roses, folks. But God does expect us to endure it and to be rewarded for it at the end when we, when we receive our eternal weight of glory. And he expects us to be victorious in it. He does not expect us to be destroyed. Because what child, what father disciplining his child expects the discipline to destroy the child? No, it makes the child stronger, not weaker. Hebrews 12, verse 8. But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you are without discipline, here's a great quote from my friend Steve Ackerson, quote, Those without discipline do not belong to God. If you can happily live your life with unconfessed and unrepented sin, you are probably not saved, and unrepented of sin, you are probably not saved. The most miserable man on earth is not a lost man. It is a saved man caught up in sin. The lost man leaps into sin and loves it. The saved man lapses into sin and loathes it. That last clever phrase is from Adrian Rogers, the famous Baptist preacher who's now gone on to be with the Lord. You know you're a son when you sin and you feel bad about it. But if you're like Jeffrey Epstein and you're not a son and you sin and you don't give a rip, people call you a sociopath, not a son. If you're without discipline, then you're illegitimate children. That's a polite way of saying you're a bastard. Typically, illegitimate children are neglected in their manners and education. This is really amazing. It's your blood child, but, you know, it's not really from your wife. So you look at all these uh, old ancient historical films about ancient royalty. The bastard child always has it worse. The illegitimate child, they never get to be king. They're ignored. Sort of like Ishmael was kind of looked down on in the household of Abraham. Even though he was not really illegitimate, he had a 
concubine for a mother, a legal concubine, fathers typically feel a little affection for the little bastards. And so bastards aren't disciplined because the father doesn't care about him. I remember this is off the subject, but I remember I was in law school and there was a professor who was talking about when he was practicing law, he had a case that dealt with an illegitimate child and he needed to look the law up under it. And he looked and he looked and he looked and he could not find the law about illegitimate children. It was about to drive him crazy. And finally, something, I don't know what, made him look under B for bastard. And there the law was because the bastard is a, a perfectly proper legal term for illegitimate children. Of course, I'm sure in today's politically correct environment, it would be illegitimate to call an illegitimate child a bastard. It might hurt his self-esteem, but it's a legal term. Now, let's talk about people who aren't sons. Psalm 73, 1 through 9. Let's talk about illegitimate children. Now, this is nine verses. I'm going to selectively quote from these nine verses, put some ellipses in here to emphasize my point. My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs, their bodies are sleek, they are not in trouble, they are not stricken, they scoff and speak with malice, loftily they threaten oppression, they set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues stretch through the earth. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease they increase in riches. And that reminds me so much of Jeffrey Epstein, which I'm now watching a a long, a several, a, a series of documentaries on Jeffrey Epstein, and it describes him perfectly. He was a pedophile. He abused young girls. He got other young girls to abuse other young girls by recruiting them in. He raped women, even when they weren't young girls. Well, even when they were of age, he would rape them. And then he made a mockery of the law. He was arrogant. He got finally got caught and put in jail for a year and a half, and the whole time he would he was out on work release six days a week, twelve hours a day, shacking up with women in his office, doing his business. It was like he was not even in jail. It just he had a cheap hotel for a year and a half. A total this was after the the Palm Beach police had come up with at least forty girls that they'd abused, and a lot of them were willing to testify. They had the goods on him, but for some reason the Justice Department quit cooperating with the police department down there. And the U.S. attorney decided not to prosecute, except on a minor charge. Go figure. Well, he ended up in jail, In jail, of course. They finally got him, and he ended up dying by his own hand, people say. Or maybe somebody killed him. We don't know. But the point is, is he had no pangs. He had no remorse about what he had done. His body was sleek. Oh, he looked cool as he went around in his, well, he didn't wear fancy clothes, but he went around in his fancy jets. Let's put it that way. They weren't stricken. He spoke with malice. Accused those girls that he was abusing and accused them of prostitution. Oh, they came in there and they took money for what I gave them. Anyway, enough of Jeffrey Epstein. There's enough people out there like that that you know sons are not like that. A son of God is going to feel remorse when he sins. Hebrews 12:9. Furthermore, we had natural fathers discipline us and we respected them. Shouldn't we submit even more to the father of spirits and live? Now, Steve Atkins got a great quote, a great metaphor here. A vine dresser is never closer to the branches than when he is pruning them. So when a father is taking care of his children, trying to make them fly right, he's close to them because he loves them. And natural fathers do that. And of course, the Hebrew Christians had natural fathers who disciplined them and they respected those fathers. And this is an a fortiori argument. If you respected your earthly fathers when they disciplined you, even more should you respect God the Father when he disciplines you with a little bit of suffering here. You should submit even more to that discipline and not run from it and apostatize and go back to the Jewish religion. He says, shouldn't we submit even more? There's the fortiori argument, even more. And the idea works like this. Natural fathers discipline imperfectly, but even more, God disciplines perfectly. So why should you not even more submit to the perfect discipline that God has? What does it mean, submit to the father of spirits? That would be to the souls of men, as John Gill puts it. Jesus made us all spiritually, excuse me, God the Father made us all spiritually. That would be in contrast with the natural fathers, the fathers of the flesh. In the first part of the verse, we had fathers of the flesh who disciplined us, but hey, how about the, the fathers of the spirits, the people who made the spiritual aspect of all human beings? His discipline is going to be better, even more perfect. Notice that what is the result of discipline? We submit even more to the Father of spirits, and what happens? We live because discipline brings life. No discipline brings death. The Hebrews knew what the law said about rebellious sons. They didn't live. They died. 
Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 through 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father or mother and doesn't listen to them even after they discipline him, his father and mother must take hold of him and bring him to the elders of his city to the gate of his hometown. They will say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He doesn't obey us. He's a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city will stone him to death. You must purge the evil from you, and all Israel will hear and be afraid. Now there's some, some use of the law that's illustrative, exemplary. You want to be a drunkard and a glutton? Look what happened to the last guy that did that. He's dead. You want to do that? As a matter of fact, I read somewhere, and I'm sure it's true, there was very rarely any cases like this because Jewish children were smart enough to know they weren't going to rebel because they would die. Now, you know, I know some cases now, kids today that just absolutely abuse their parents because their parents can't say no to them. They end up on drugs. They run out of money. They come running home. And, of course, the typical counselor's advice is tough love. Kick them out of the house until they agree to come in and not do drugs. That's rough. I hope I, I've never had to do that, but I know I have a friend who had to do it. And, you know, that kid, he was he was addicted on some drug I never heard of, but it was more addictive than crack cocaine. And he actually came. They kicked him out of the house. He finally came back in and quit doing the drugs and got him a job. Last I heard, I, he might have relapsed by then. I don't know. I hope not. But so I know somebody personally who had to do this. Discipline is difficult, difficult, difficult. Didn't James Dobson write a book called Dare to Discipline because he looked at his culture and he knew that nobody was disciplining their kids. And look at the result today. Our culture is just so full of garbage now, so much rebellion and arrogance and drugs and broken families and child abuse and pederasty and you name it. It's, we got it. Wife abuse, abuse of the kids. We would submit to God. None of this would happen. We will submit to the Father of Spirits in his discipline, and we will live. That's either temporarily, temporarily live or eternally live, or maybe both. Seek discipline, folks. It'll make you live. Verse 10, Hebrews 12. For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. This is talking about earthly parents. But he does it, he, God, does it for our benefit so that we can share his holiness. So if you want to be holy, you better fall in love with discipline. You're not going to be holy. It just doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't grow like yeast in a petri dish or something. I mean, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to be trained in it, trained in holiness through the events of your life, which will train you because this life is a hard life. Well, let's take all the hard things of life and use it to submit to God even more and, and learn to see how he always delivers you and how he cares for you in the midst of all your garbage. They disciplined us for a short time, these earthly parents did. Now, it's ambiguous as to what the short time is. It could be the minority of the children. They are only children for a little while. And when they reach adulthood, they're not disciplined anymore. It could be the short lifetime of the natural parents compared to God. Or it could be that the discipline itself only lasts for a few days. doesn't really matter. It's interesting how it can, it's triply ambiguous. Well, they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them. It seemed good to them, see, because they didn't have perfect knowledge. It, they, just, they, they disciplined according to the natural lights. Sometimes natural parents make mistakes. God never does, but natural parents do. Now, this doesn't mean that the natural parents' discipline was arbitrary and capricious, like a lot of abusive parents. I used to work in a home for neglected and abused girls, and I'm telling you. Some of the punishments meted out, like one young lady uh, had a some kind of a hyper-legalistic mother or something, she was made to recite Bible verses, and when she didn't recite the Bible verses correctly, the mother stuck her head in the toilet and flushed the toilet. Now, you know, that mother should be under the jailhouse. And not to mention the fact that girl's really going to be receptive to Christianity now, is she not? Really sad. But that's not what the author's talking about here. He's not talking about extreme, capricious, and arbitrary punishments. He's talking about imperfect Discipline. Discipline's hard. You can discipline a little bit too hard. You can discipline a little bit too soft. Each kid is different. Each situation is different. It's it's, it's like being a, a full-time lawyer, you know, or a judge. Those cases are difficult. You know, which way do I go here? Now, that but. What's the contrast there? They disciplined us for a short time, our natural parents did, based on what see, seemed good to them. But he does it for our benefit. Now, the but shows a contrast. So you say, well, they disciplined us for their own benefit, but God does it for our benefit? Well, that's possible, but do you really think that's likely? That's the first option here. The parents' focus is on getting kids to be raised in their own image, but God's focus is on our benefit. Well, I don't think that's what it is. It sounds like it could be, but that doesn't seem logical to me. 
It could be this, for they discipline us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but God does it. And then for our benefit is sort of incidental. Parents discipline according to their natural knowledge, but God does it. God does, he does the discipline of Christians according to his omniscience. So the contrast is, being, is, is between the imperfect knowledge of the natural parents and the perfect knowledge of God. And then the for our benefit is sort of incidental. So it would read like this. Natural parents discipline us for a short time based on what seemed good to them according to their natural knowledge. But God does it omnisciently. And by the way, he does it for our own benefit. That might be a stretch, too. That's kind of a difficult verse exactly to get at what, what, what he's talking about here. But at any rate, we know that natural discipline of parents, even though it's used as a good example, it's not the same as divine discipline from God. I mean, natural parents discipline just so the kid will behave according to the norms of social convention to, to turn him into a civilized human being. But God disciplines us not to make us a good citizen, but to make us holy and to share in his nature. We go to verse 11, Hebrews 12. No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Hear, hear. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I told you about my painful experience of getting whipped and put into my room while everybody else in the family was eating that sirloin steak. It was painful. However, it yielded the fruit of peace and righteousness because now I know I'll never do that again. I will never scare the cook with a blown-up firecracker while they're cooking in a grill, on a grill. It yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. As Steve Ackerson says, only when you are cleansed from sin and are holy will you be happy. That's peace. You'll have peace. You'll be happy when you're cleansed from sin. Peace and righteousness said to be fruit. That's the product of, the fruit of, the product of discipline. And that righteousness, of course, is practical righteousness, not forensic legal righteousness, not justification righteousness. When you are declared righteous before the throne of God because of the blood of Jesus, you got that at salvation. This is talking about living your life out in your pursuit of sanctification. So this is practical sanctified holiness, sanctified righteousness. Now, I've lost this author, this quote. I suspect it's from my good friend Steve Atkinson, but I didn't write it down. But it's a great quote. I'm going to read it to you. Quote, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't despise it. Don't be mad at God. Don't be discouraged. Don't hang your head and give up. Instead, be trained by it. Ask, Lord, what do you want to teach me from my pain? We must be students of our pain to learn what God wants to teach us. Stand as a ready student. Don't waste the suffering. Learn all you can. It will impact your prayer life, the way you read the Bible, the way you respond to the disruptive moments, etc. Embrace the pain. Don't waste the suffering. That's some great, great quotation there. Here's a scripture that kind of backs that up. Again, we're still talking about the con in the context of how righteousness is the fruit of discipline. Psalm 119, verse 71. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I could learn your statutes. Ah, that's how you get to be righteous. You learn Jesus' statutes or God's statutes. How do you learn God's statutes? Be afflicted. It's, it's sort of counterintuitive. I don't know if you're like me, and I bet you are. You don't like suffering. You don't like this hardship. Who does? Yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. There's another Olympic metaphor, all the training that's done for the Olympic races and boxing matches. Verse 12, Hebrews 12. Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees. The author is referring here to Isaiah 35, verse 3. Strengthen the weak hands, steady the shaking, shaking knees. Here's some other scriptures showing the need for endurance. Hebrews 10:36. For you need endurance, the author says in chapter 10, verse 36. For you need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. You want to get the reward? Jesus at the finish line? Well, you've got to endure. You've got to keep running until you get to the finish line. Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance. Well, if you're going to do that, you're going to need to strengthen your tired hands and weakened knees. Now, running with endurance means your weakened knees need to be strengthened. Again, we're talking about Olympic metaphors here, athletic metaphors. Tired hands refers to boxing. You you watch boxers that get the left in the twelfth rounds and their hands are sort of drooping, you know, they're not not up around their head where it should be. Great metaphor there. Strengthen yourself to get through this persecution, Hebrew Christians. We'll now look at verse thirteen and finish this audio up. Hebrews twelve, verse thirteen, and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be dislocated but healed and said. The NIV says make level paths for your feet. It means not with 
rocks sticking up and declivities on one side of the path going down and you know rough unsmooth path because you walk on a path like that you're likely to turn your ankle especially if you're lame and the author here says so what is lame may not be dislocated you're a lame person walking on a path like that you're going to twist your foot and you're not going to get healed you're going to make it worse and so a straight path is a metaphor for holiness fly right do that which is according to god's will now, what scripture is the author of Hebrews quoting from? Probably from Job 4, 3, and 4. Indeed, you have instructed many and have strengthened weak hands. Strengthened weak hands. Your words have steadied the one who was stumbling and braced the knees that were buckling. There's your weak knees. I should have read that verse under verse 12, which is the previous verse, but that's all right. Job continues in verse 4, chapter 4. Your words have steadied steadied the one who was stumbling and braced the knees that were buckling. Listen to the word of God and your knees won't be so weak anymore. You can keep running with endurance the race that has Jesus at the finish line. Proverbs 4 verse 26. Carefully consider the path for your feet and all your ways will be established. Now that doesn't sound too much like what the author quoted from but in the Septuagint version we read make straight paths for thy feet which is exactly what the author in verse 13 says make straight paths for your feet. So that what is lame, of course, what is probably being referred to here is the Hebrew Christians who were wavering in their faith and tempted to return to Jerusalem. Could be all the Hebrew Christians in general, but I think it's more likely the ones who were thinking about apostatizing. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now finished with Hebrews 12. We can see that the theme was endure. Don't get tired. Keep running the race. Put up with some light affliction so you can get that weight of glory at the finish line when we get to heaven. We have finished with Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 13. In our next audio, we will look at a kingdom that cannot be shaken as we examine verses 14 through 29. I hope I can finish the whole audio, and that's the the whole uh, 16 verses in the next audio. I hope you stay tuned for that one. hope you enjoyed this one. 